that the population of Ephesus at its zenith was near that of Knoxville proper today. The temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, was located in Ephesus. It was approximately the size of Thompson Bowling Arena. There was a large amphitheater there that's still present today, which could hold approximately 25,000 people. On Paul's second missionary journey, he traveled to Ephesus where he found 12 disciples of Apollos. Paul quizzed them about their faith and discovered that they had not yet been converted. Paul explained the gospel to them, pointing them to Jesus Christ, and they were saved. Afterwards, Paul taught in the Jewish synagogue in Ephesus for three months, and some of his hearers not only rejected his message, but they rebelled at what he was teaching. So Paul took those who believed and moved, to, moved their meeting from the synagogue to a school owned by a man by the name of Tyrannus. Paul continued for two years in Ephesus, preaching the gospel, and God blessed his ministry there. Acts chapter 19 records that many people in Ephesus who practiced occultism were saved and publicly burned their books on magic. Also in Acts chapter 19 is a story of a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith in Ephesus and he made silver shrines to the goddess Diana. And the gospel had been so effective in Ephesus that Demetrius feared that his trade of building idols to Diana was in jeopardy of extinction. He incited a riot in Ephesus that caused the inhabitants of that city to fill that 25,000-seat amphitheater that I referred to a moment ago. The Apostle Paul was in town at that time, and he wanted to preach to the crowd in the amphitheater, but believers, some believers there prohibited him from doing that because they feared for his life. The Christians in Ephesus asked Paul to stay a little longer. He did not do so, but he left Aquila and Priscilla there to lead the church. Some years later... As Paul's life was drawing to an end, he called for the elders of the church of Ephesus to come to see him. Paul had some very serious concerns about the well-being of the church at Ephesus, and he shared his concerns with the elders about this church. The Ephesian church had problems from ministers outside the congregation and members within the congregation. Ministers outside the congregation is recorded for us in Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Paul tells the elders of the Ephesian church, I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And Paul said that wolves in sheep's clothing would come in among the Ephesian believers. They would come into the church. They would become a part of the church. They would initially appear to be believers, and they would come in among the believers in Ephesus. But it would later be revealed that they were savage wolves. Though they might feign so initially, they would in reality not care about the spiritual well-being of the Ephesian believers. And Paul said that they would not spare the flock, that they would destroy the flock of believers by one means or another. Also in Acts 20, Paul told the elders of the church at Ephesus that not only would there come attacks upon the church from without, he said there also would be attacks from the church within. In Acts 20, 30, we see that members inside the congregation would work against the fellowship as well. And Paul described the fickleness of some of the professing believers in the church at Ephesus, where he says, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Some church members would come to prominence. They would speak perverse things. They would speak things that distorted the gospel, things that misrepresented the gospel. They would think, uh, speak things that were morally corrupt. 
And these diabolical teachers would intentionally teach things so as to draw the disciples away after them and away from the gospel. And this would make the Ephesian church members follow them instead of Christ. These ministers from without the church, these members from within the church, would reap havoc upon the church fellowship in Ephesus. And in 1 Timothy, Paul told Timothy even some more bad things about the church in Ephesus that had developed. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 6, he says that some in the church had turned aside from the faith to following idle talk. 1 Timothy 1.19, some professing believers had even rejected the faith. 1 Timothy 5.15, some had already turned aside and were following Satan. 1 Timothy 6.10, some have strayed away from the faith. And then he says the same thing again in 1 Timothy 6.21, some have strayed concerning the faith. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul gives Timothy a little more distressing information about the spiritual defection of the members of the Ephesian church. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul described for the young preacher what the church at Ephesus was like. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's the preaching of the word. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. And Paul told Timothy that some of the people in the Ephesian church had itching ears. Now that's a curious expression, and this is the only place in Scripture where it's used here in verse 3. And the Greek here it refers to rubbing or scratching uh, something to alleviate the, the itch. The image is derived from the desire that we have when there is an itching sensation to rub it or to scratch it. And Paul told Timothy that the people of Ephesus had itching ears. The imagery is that their itching ears are scratched or, or tickled by the false teachers who teach whatever is sensational, whatever is new, but in the end conforms their own evil desires. I notice in 2 Timothy 4.3, Paul used the idiom itching ears as being contrary to sound doctrine. The, the expression means that the church members at Ephesus deliberately turned away from the truth and deliberately crossed over into myths and believed the myths. People with itching ears desire to hear things that are pleasing to their ears rather than things that they need to hear. In other words, the people in the church at Ephesus would grow tired of hearing the word which reproved them and rebuked them and would want to hear things that made them feel good about themselves. And in verse 3, it tells us that they will heap up for themselves teachers. They would look for teachers who would scratch their itch. They would look for teachers who would tell them things that would please them. Now notice the number of false teachers that there would be. They will heap up for themselves teachers, plural. The Greek word translated as heap is a combination of two words, the verb to heap up, but then there's a preposition added to it, which intensifies the verb, and it makes the heap mean a really big heap of, 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 of teachers. Now, a heap refers to a great big pile of false teachers. It's easy to find a heap of false teachers, but a preacher of the word is rare. Church members, when you have a man of God who will preach the word of God, then you need to thank God every day for him and pray every day for him because such preachers are rare in comparison to the heap of false teachers that are out there in this world. Verse 4, And they, that is that heap of false teachers, will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. The members of the church at Ephesus would rather hear fables than the word. 
They would rather hear myths than the truth. But the emphasis in this verse is not so much on the false teachers as it is on those who chose to listen to them. The point Paul is making is about the fickleness and the spiritual shallowness of the people of the church at Ephesus. The opposition is spelled out in verses 3 and 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They will not tolerate the teaching of the word. So the church at Ephesus was a very, very, very troubled congregation. And sometime after his meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus, because of the condition of the church at Ephesus, Paul dispatched Timothy there as his personal representative to assume the pastorate there and to straighten out the mess. Timothy had been Paul's traveling companion on some of his journeys, and the apostle thought of him as a son. And in the meantime, Paul was confined to prison. He was facing execution. And he writes 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last recorded words. They were written shortly before his execution. And our text for this afternoon is Paul's written instructions to Timothy about how the apostle expected his son in the ministry to pastor the troubled church at Ephesus. And in this letter to Timothy, Paul gave his young protege a crash course in, pro in Pastorology 101, or in the basics of being a pastor. Let's read 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. The Apostle Paul tells Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Now I want you to see the command of the charge. Verse 1. The expression, I charge you, that Paul proclaimed to Timothy, expresses a formal charge. The Greek word translated as charge is a combination from a verb meaning to implore, and the verb has a preposition before it that intensifies it, and the word charge describes an emphatic demand. This is not a light thing with Paul. This is not a casual remark that Paul makes to Timothy. Paul was giving Timothy an emphatic demand. There was no ambiguity about what Paul was telling Timothy. There's a lot of spiritual emphasis in this word. Plus, this Greek word that's translated as charge can also be a technical term for the transferring of an office, which is what is happening here, because Paul knows his life is ending, and that Timothy is going to soon have to shoulder the responsibility of ministry all by himself. And the emphatic demand that Paul gives Timothy is spread over verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, if we take out the, the parenthetical statements of verse 1, Paul tells Timothy, I charge you, preach the word. I emphatically demand of you that you preach the word. Well, not only is the word charge that Paul used an emphatic demand, but in verse 2 where Paul tells Timothy to preach the word, the word preach is in the imperative mode, which means what he says is imperative. It is a command. Not only... Did Paul emphatically demand that Timothy preach the word? But he also commanded that Timothy preach the word. Paul doubled up on his mandate that Timothy preach the word. He literally told Timothy, I command you and I emphatically demand of you, preach the word. Now you might get the idea from that, that Paul thought it was pretty important to preach the word. The apostle did not suggest that Timothy preached the word. He did not hint that Timothy preached the word. He did not merely think it was a good idea for Timothy to preach the word. He emphatically demanded and commanded that Timothy preach the word. 
It was not an option for Timothy to do anything else, anything else in Ephesus but to preach the word. Paul's instruction to Timothy about being a, the pastor of the church at Ephesus was not on Timothy's role as pastor, not only his role as church administrator, not only his role as visionary for the future of the church, not only his role as being the visitor of the flock, not only his role of being the hospital visitor, but of being a preacher of the word. And these other things are important, but preaching of the word is the preeminent duty and responsibility of pastors. The very first thing on Paul's list of what a pastor should do is preach the word. A man cannot be an effective pastor if he is not a preacher of the word. Now, furthermore, in his command to Timothy to preach the word, Paul did not allow for any other thing to be proclaimed by the new pastor other than the word of God. Timothy was not to proclaim the words of Caesar. He was not to proclaim his personal opinion about divine things. He was not to proclaim the apostles' commentary on the things of God. He was to preach the word. So Isaiah, preach the word. That's your preeminent duty as a pastor. Don't preach the prosperity gospel. Don't preach the seeker-friendly gospel. Don't preach pop psychology. Don't preach the latest ism and schism in Christianity. Don't preach how to have your best life now. Preach the word. God did not call you to be an orator. He did not, did not call you to be a pulpiteer. He did not call you to be a storyteller. He did not call you to be a speech maker. He did not call you to be an entertainer. He did not call you to be a life coach. He did not call you to be a motivational speaker. He did not call you to be a proponent of religious fads and novelties or any of the myriad of other things that so-called preachers of today are. God called you to be a preacher of the word. So Paul's command to Timothy to preach the word raises a question. Why should a pastor preach the word instead of these other things that I mentioned? That brings us to our next point. I want you to notice the context of the charge. If uh, I want you to notice the, the context of Paul's charge to Timothy that we're looking at, and I want you to particularly note a word in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul told Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the, Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the word therefore in verse 1 links what is about to be said with what has just been said, which takes us back into chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. A very familiar passage to you. Now this is Paul's train of thought in our text. Since, Paul says, since, chapter 3, 16, since all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Next verse, therefore, I charge you, preach the word. And Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, because of what he had already said about scripture up in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. In chapter 3, Paul told Timothy, of the production of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. He told him about the purpose of Scripture. Scripture is for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. He told him about the power of Scripture in the minister's life, which is to equip him for the work of the ministry and empower and enable him to be an effective minister of God. In the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Paul goes on to say, Therefore, because of the production of Scripture, because of the purpose of Scripture, because of the power of Scripture, preach the word. 
So our text in chapter 4 looks back to what Paul said about Scripture in chapter 3. And since what Paul told Timothy about Scripture in chapter 3 was intended to help Timothy understand the importance of preaching the Word as he was commanded to do in chapter 4, I think we need to examine what Paul said about Scripture in chapter 3. Notice, first of all, the production of Scripture, chapter, uh, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word inspiration there is a Greek word, theonoustos, which is a combination of two Greek words, theos, which is the word for God, nueo, which is a verb for to breathe or to blow. So the word inspiration literally means God-breathed or God-blown. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-blown. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And whenever a person speaks, he breathes out as he speaks. So Paul told Timothy that Scripture was God speaking to man. Now if we compare this verse with 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, it paints a beautiful picture for us of the inspiration of Scripture. In 2 Peter 1, 21, it says, Prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the Greek word translated here as moved means to carry. And it is used of a person who is born in a ship over the sea. Now, if we put these two thoughts together, that God breathed Scripture and the person born in a ship over the sea, then we can see that the authors of Scripture as rudderless ships on the sea that were blown about wherever the breath of God or the wind of God blew them. That is, the approximately 40 men who penned the Scriptures wrote what they were moved of God to write so that their words were the very words of God. God superintended the human authors of the Bible so that while they were using their own writing styles and personality, they still recorded exactly what God intended for them to, 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 to write. And the Bible was not dictated by God, but it was perfectly guided and entirely inspired by Him so that what we have is the very Word of God to man. And that's why Paul commanded Timothy to preach the Word, because it's the Word of God. It is to be God's word a pastor proclaims. There is no thing a pastor can expound that is more important than the word of God. But there's another layer of truth to this scripture about, about scripture being God-breathed. If we look at the creation of man, we see another truth that we can draw from uh, in the concept of scripture being God-breathed. Scripture records another time that God breathed. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, it says, the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being. And when God breathed into Adam, he became a living being. Now, in that same way, God's word is a life-giving book. It is by scripture that a lost person becomes spiritually alive. Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Now, that formula is in reverse order of how the events actually take place. If you turn it around, it starts with the Word of God, then comes hearing, then comes faith. So if faith is produced in someone's heart, it is because he has heard the Word. He must have the Word to have faith. And that is why Paul is so emphatic about Timothy preaching the Word, because it is the hearing of the Word that produces faith in the hearts of the listeners and lost, spiritually dead sinners come to life. Have you ever heard anyone say, I was immoral and ungodly, I was a disgrace to my family until I began to study diesel mechanics. But when I learned from my textbook how to disassemble and reassemble a, dis, uh, a diesel engine, it changed my life. I am a new man. 
I have been happy and I have peace in my heart. Have you ever heard of someone attributing his salvation from a godless, immoral life to having read a textbook on diesel mechanics? Well, of course not. But every believer attributes his or her salvation to having heard the word which birthed them to life in Christ. That's why preaching of the word is so important. Now notice the purpose of Scripture. Paul lists four things. Verse 16, it's good for doctrine. That's instruction. Doctrine refers specifically and exclusively to divine instruction or doctrine given to believers through God's word. John MacArthur says of this word doctrine, when it comes to godly living and godly service to growing in the uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord, God-breathed scripture provides for us the only comprehensive and complete body of divine truth necessary to live as our Heavenly Father desires for us to live. The wisdom and guidance for fulfilling everything He commands us to believe, think, say, and do is found in His inerrant, authoritative, comprehensive, and complete word. End of quote. The term doctrine is used to refer to instruction about what is right. A second purpose of Scripture, verse 16, it is for reproof. And the Greek word translated here as reproof carries the idea of rebuking in order to convict a person of misbehavior or of believing false doctrine. It means to rebuke another with such effectual wielding of the arm of truth as to bring that person, if not always, to confession of his sins, at least to conviction of his sins. And one of the purposes of Scripture is to reprove us of things in our life that are dishonoring or displeasing to the Lord. If a pastor's sermon is only a hearer-friendly gospel and it never reproves his people of sin, then he's not using Scripture as God intended him to use it. The term reprove addresses what is not right in our lives. A third purpose of Scripture, verse 16, is for correction. This refers to restoring something to its original condition. In secular Greek literature, this Greek word was used of setting upright an object that had fallen down and of helping a person back on his feet after he stumbled. And once a pastor uses Scripture to reprove his people and reveal how they have fallen down, he must also use it to correct his people. He must use Scripture to upright the saints who have fallen down. And the term correction is about how to get right. And then the fourth purpose of Scripture, verse 16, it is for the instruction in righteousness. And instruction in righteousness is how to stay right once a person has gotten right. So when pastors preach the Word, then it does its work on their, their people. It instructs them on the doctrine, what is the right thing to do. It brings reproof about what is wrong in their lives. It brings correction, how they are to get right. And it brings instruction in righteous, righteousness, how they are to stay right. And Paul told Timothy not only about the production of Scripture and the purpose of Scripture, he also told him about the power of Scripture, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, that, notice Paul's train of thought. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that, in order that, the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. When the Word is being preached, then the people will know doctrine. They will be reproved by the Word. They will be corrected by the Word. They will be instructed in righteousness by the Word. And when that is being done, then the people will be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work that God intends. The word complete in verse 17 is a word that means to be 
in fit shape, to be in fit condition. It implies being fitted for a particular use. And when pastors preach the word, then their people are complete. They know everything that they need to know in order to perform good works. And they are thoroughly equipped. That means they are equipped to do what they need to do. So in other words, the word of God furnishes and equips a believer so that he can live a life that pleases God and do the work God wants him to do. And the better we know the word, the better we're able to live and work for God. So we've seen what Paul commanded Timothy, or why Paul commanded Timothy to preach the word, because it's the very word of God himself, and because of what the word will accomplish in the lives of church members when it is proclaimed to receptive hearts. I want you to notice the composition of the charge to Timothy. Chapter 4, verse 2. Paul commanded Timothy, preach the word. The Greek word translated as preach comes from a word that means to herald, to officiate as a herald, to herald as a public crier. Now, heralds were originally messengers that were sent by kings to convey messages or proclamations from them to the people. In Paul's day, a ruler had a special herald who made announcements to the people. He was commissioned by the king to make uh, announcements in a loud, clear voice so everyone could hear. He was an official messenger. For example, the herald of Daniel chapter 3 and verse 4 was responsible for publicizing the king's law and the penalty for disobedience. Heralds did not originate the message. They delivered the message to the public. They merely delivered the message of the king exactly as the king had given them the message. The message was given to them to deliver it. They could not alter the message in any way. And if a herald added to the king's messages or deleted some part of the king's messages, he would be executed for dereliction of duty. It was a duty of a herald. It was a duty of a town crier, come rain or shine, to stand in the public square and proclaim the news from the king. It was in this way that people heard the news about important coming events. The herald had the authority of the king behind him. Isaiah, you've been called to be a herald of the word. You represent the king of all kings. The message is not yours to alter, to add to, or to subtract from. You are to herald the full counsel of God. You are to proclaim the good news of the gospel so that your people will hear the news from God himself. Paul goes on in verse 2 and gives Timothy some sermon tips. The aged apostle told the young minister how, how to fashion his sermons. He, he told Timothy to preach three-point sermons. Maybe not every week, but that's, that's what he has here. He says, he tells Timothy, preach the word. And when you preach the word, use it to do three things. Convince, rebuke, exhort. Then when he was convincing, rebuking, and exhorting with the word of God, Paul told Timothy that he should do it with long-suffering and teaching. Now the word convince here in verse 2 is the same word as reproved. Uh, that's over in chapter 3, verse 16. In other words, when Timothy preached the word, he was commanded to, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he was doing the same thing as reproving his con uh, congregation with the word. And when the word of God is preached, it brings needed reproof to faithful listeners. And the Greek word translated here as reprove is also translated as expose in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11. It just means to bring something to light. The minister of the gospel is to bring to light the sins of his people, and he does that by preaching the word and convincing his people of the sins by preaching the word. The meaning is that Timothy was to use such, such arguments as to convince his people of the truth of the claims of the gospel. 
Not only was Timothy to convince his people of their sins, he was also to rebuke, verse 2. Now that's a stronger word than convince. This is the same word that's used where Jesus rebuked the wind that was blowing against the boat that he and his disciples roamed. Rebuke has to do with confrontation of wrong actions. Rebuke may have to do with the heart, with bringing a person under conviction of guilt for what he's doing. The first word, convince, discloses the sinfulness of sin, whereas the second word discloses the sinfulness of the sinner. Then he says, exhort, verse 2. If they listened to Timothy when he rebuked them, then he was to exhort them, encourage them to live out the gospel in a righteous life. And the Greek word translated as exhort is a combination of two words, the verb kaleo, which means to call, and the word para, which means beside. So the word, uh, this word literally means to call to one side or to call near. This is the same Greek word root that's used to describe the Holy Spirit as being our comforter or our helper. In other words, he's one who stands beside us to encourage us. This word also refers to someone called near, a person who is in need of encouragement so as to render that encouragement. This word was actually used in secular Greek as a rallying call. It was used of military commanders who would speak to his troops who were fearful and hesitant about going into battle. He would speak this kind of a speech and then he would encourage them. He would put courage into them by his speech and then they would go off into battle. A pastor must encourage his people to godly living and faithful service to the Lord. Now there's a saying among pastors that we pastors are to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. Now that's what Paul is referring to here when he tells Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort his people. If there is conviction in sermons but no remedy, then pastors add to their people's burdens. If pastors encourage those who ought to be rebuked, then they are assisting the, the, the congregation in their sin. Biblical preaching has to be balanced. Notice the character of the clergy. Chapter 4, verse 2, Paul told Timothy that when he preached the word in order to convince, rebuke, and exhort to teach his people, he should do it in season, out of season, and with all longsuffering. He, Paul told Timothy he needed to be prepared to preach. He should do it in season and out of season. In other words, ministers should preach when it's an opportune time to preach, when it is an inopportune time to preach. Sometimes it is opportune time to preach the word, sometimes it's not. Sometimes a pastor will have to preach the word in a conducive setting, and sometimes in awkward settings. Sometimes a pastor must preach the word to his congregation, and sometimes to acquaintances in private conversations. Sometimes he speak, the pastor's flock will be ready to receive the word, and sometimes they will not. But a pastor must be ready in season and out of season to preach the word. He may have to preach in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. He may have to preach in a church setting, outside of the church setting. He may have to preach in crowds in a public setting or to one individual in a private setting. He may have to preach in public, uh, public sermons or in private conversations. Paul himself always found opportunity to share the gospel whether it was in the temple courtyard or, or on a ship on a storm-tossed sea or even in prison. And Paul told Timothy that he had to be prepared to preach. He should preach in season and out of season. Then he next told the young disciple that he should not only be prepared to preach, he should be patient when preaching. He should do it with long-suffering. And Paul told Timothy to be long-suffering when he preached the word. And the Greek word long-suffering is an interesting word. It comes from a combination of two Greek words, makros, which means long. We get our word macro 
from this word. And the word thumos, which means heat, we get our word thermal from this word. So the word long-suffering literally means taking a long time to get hot. Paul told Timothy, when he saw the sins of his people, when he preached the word so as to convince, rebuke, and exhort his people, and they did not respond as quickly and as fully as the young pastor thought they should, he should take a long time to get hot. In other words, Paul told Timothy that he should be patient with his people. Sometimes when pastors see the sins and spiritual immaturity and spiritual apathy in the lives of his people, despite having faithfully preached the word, they want to slap some sense into their people, but they have to resist that temptation and take a long time to get hot. Paul's point about this is that Timothy was not to get discouraged when his people were not growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord as they should. Just keep preaching the word, Paul's telling him. Let the word of God do the convincing and the rebuking and the encouraging and the teaching. And if a pastor faithfully preaches the word week in and week out, then little by little it will chip away at the sinfulness of his people if they are faithful to hear it. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29. God said of his word, Is not my word like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Now, it's impossible to break a boulder into, piece, into pieces with a hammer and one or two blows of a hammer. It takes many, many hammer strikes to reduce a boulder to a pile of gravel. Isaiah, just keep preaching the word. Let the hammer of God do its work. Then notice the coming, the coming commentary. In verse 1, Paul tells Timothy that he ministers before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing. And on the front end of his command to Timothy, before he actually delivered the charge to the young pastor, Paul reminded his protege of the seriousness of the call to ministry and of the coming commentary that ministers are going to give of their ministries. God is not the final judge of the ministry of pastors. God is the final judge of the minister's uh, ministries of pastors, not man. Pastors may preach, thus saith the Lord. They may preach the whole counsel of God, and man may react to it. They may rail against it. They may actively fight against it. And a pastor may feel his ministry has never amounted to much, but man is not the final arbiter of the effectiveness of the ministries of pastor. God is. But hit Paul's words to Timothy in verse 1. Paul wanted the young pastor to realize that as he does his ministerial duty in Ephesus, he does so in the unseen presence of God in Christ. And that he will have to give an account of his faithfulness or lack of faithfulness to preach the word. Verse 1 creates a great solemn, uh, solemn scene that Timothy is to understand the charge he's given in verse 2. As Timothy discharges his duty as a pastor, he does so in the full sight of God and Christ, who is the final judge and in recognition that Christ is coming again soon. Now, according to verse 1, ministers are before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And this verse tells us when Jesus comes again, he's going to judge every person who has ever, ever lived. All people who have ever lived will give an account of their lives on earth before the Lord Jesus Christ. But Scripture relates in other places that there is a particular aspect of the coming judgment that is especially designed for ministers of the word. Hebrews 13, verse 17, tells the laity to be submissive to their pastors. And then the passage gives the reason why. It says, because pastors are charged by God to watch over the souls of their parishioners, because pastors will have to give an account before God for the souls under their care. 
And when Jesus comes again, he will call all pastors to give an accounting of their pastorates and of their faithfulness or lack thereof of preaching the word and proclaiming thus saith the Lord. Then James 3, 1 adds to what the writer of Hebrews tells us about the future judgment of pastors at, at the judgment seat of Christ. This verse tells us that ministers will be judged more strictly than the laity in the coming judgment. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers of the word of God, don't become pastors, knowing we shall receive a stricter judgment. So it is a very serious thing to be a preacher of the word. When a pastor stands behind this sacred pulpit, he must be certain that what he saith is what the Lord saith. It is a very serious thing for pastors to stand in the pulpit and proclaim, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord hadn't saith. Now that's why Paul has already told Timothy up in chapter 2, verse 15, that he needs to rightly divide the word. The Greek word translated as rightly divide is a combination of two Greek words. It literally means just to cut straight. In this verse, Paul is talking about a workman who cuts something straight. Now, perhaps he was thinking about himself and his trade when he made this remark, because remember from Acts chapter 18, verse 3, Paul was a tent maker by trade. And whenever he cut the panels for tents, he must cut them straight so that when they were assembled into the final product, the tent stood plumb and level. Preachers of the word must cut it straight. They must be sure that how they cut the word of God to serve it to their people, that they cut it straight. And they do not cut it crooked so as to make the word of God say what they want it to say rather than what God wants it to say. And when a pastor faithfully preaches the word, then the word will cause a church member's spiritual life and spiritual faith to grow if they receive the word that is preached. Preaching the word makes a, a pastor's ministry effective. Faithfully preaching the word will perform things in the lives of parishioners and keep down problems in the church. Preaching the word will affect evangelism. A few verses ahead of where we are in chapter 3, verse 15. In this verse, Paul tells Timothy that from a child you've known the scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. Timothy's grandmother and mother had taught him scripture from the time he was a child and that spiritual instruction from the word produced faith, salvation in Timothy's life. If you want people to be saved under your ministry, preach the word. Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is a power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Do your, do your people need guidance in their lives? Preach the word. Psalm 119.105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God lightens our pathway. Do your people need encouraging? Preach the word. Acts 20.32, so now brethren, I command, commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. It will build you up. Do your people need help overcoming sin in their lives? Preach the word. Psalm 119.9, how can a young man cleanse his way by taking heed according to your word? And I could go on and on and on about things that the word of God can accomplish in our lives. So let's start bringing this to a conclusion. What do we know about the effectiveness of Timothy as the pastor of the church of Ephesus? Now, we do not know anything definitively about this, and Scripture does not explicitly say anything about this, but we can surmise his effectiveness when we examine a couple of extra-biblical sources. The book of 2 Timothy that we're studying this afternoon was written approximately 67 
A.D., shortly before the Apostle Paul was put to death. So Timothy was already the pastor of the church at Ephesus in 67 A.D. by the time Paul wrote this book. According to extra-biblical church tradition, Timothy remained in Ephesus for the rest of his life until he was martyred for his faith. Fox's Book of Martyrs is one of the great classics of Christianity, and it details the history of Christian persecution from the earliest days of the church to the time of the Protestant Reformation. And it says of Timothy, and I quote, Timothy was the celebrated disciple of St. Paul and Bishop of Ephesus, where he zealously governed the church until A.D. 97. At this period, as the pagans were about to celebrate a feast in worship to Diana, Timothy, meeting the procession, severely reproved them for their idolatry, which so exasperated the people that they fell upon him with clubs and beat him so dreadfully in, in so dreadful a manner that he expired of bruises two days later, end of quote. So since Paul wrote his second letter to Timothy around 67 A.D., and Fox's Book of Martyr puts the time of Timothy's death around A.D. 97, then Timothy served as pastor of Ephesus Church for 30 years or so. So for 30 years, Timothy preached the word in Ephesus. Now with that fact in mind, I want you to go to Revelation chapter 2. The Apostle John, who wrote the book of the Revelation, was given a vision of seven churches. And one of these seven churches was a church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastor for 30 years or so. Now I want you to listen to how the church is described in the book of Revelation. Now let me refresh your memory about what we've talked about today concerning the church at Ephesus when Paul was writing about it. Remember Paul's warning to Timothy about wolves coming in among the fellowship and about unbelieving church members who would rise up and lead believers astray who would, and the church members would look for false teachers to tickle their ears? Now, what we're told about the church at Ephesus in the book of Acts and the two books of Timothy paint a pretty bleak picture of the church. Irenaeus, who was a Greek bishop and writer of the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D., reports on the basis of some earlier historical documents that he had seen, documents that were closer to the time of John and Timothy than he was. He says, John received the revelation uh, toward the end of the reign of Domitian. And Domitian's reign in, ended in 96. All right. I know I'm throwing out a lot of dates, but I'll draw it here, together here in a minute. So John received his revelation about the same time that Timothy was martyred after having been the pastor of the Ephesus church for 30 years. Now listen to how the church at Ephesus is described around 96 AD. It's quite a different church than the days of the Apostle Paul. Revelation 2, 1. Christ is speaking in this passage. He says to the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And Christ tells the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You cannot bear those who are evil. You cannot bear those wolves coming in among the fellowship and those unbelieving church members who cause trouble. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, but they're actually wolves, and have found them liars. You have persevered 
and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. From what Christ said of this church in the book of Revelation around A.D. 96, after 30 years or so of Timothy's ministry there, it tells us that Timothy had preached the word. It tells us that the church had received the warning of the Apostle Paul. The church had responded to his exhortation. They had cast out the savage wolves in sheep clothing that came into the fellowship to attack the flock. They had cast out the church members who came to prominence and spoke perverse things, trying to draw the church members unto themselves. And Christ's description of the church at Ephesus in Revelation is a far cry from the description of the church in the book of Acts and in the books of Timothy. So Timothy's faithful preaching of the word for 30 years marvelously transformed the church at Ephesus. But there's an addendum to what Christ said about the church at Ephesus in verse 4. Nevertheless, Christ says, nevertheless, despite what a great church you became, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. It was it was not the church members of the late first century. It was not that they did not love Jesus anymore. It's just they did not love him as much as they used to love him. Their spiritual fervor had waned. And it was not as fervent for the things of God as it once was. Despite Timothy's faithfully, uh, faithfulness to preach the word for 30 years or so, people still backslid. Now, I can't prove this, and this is just the, the gospel according to Lloyd, okay? So don't take the Lord's name in vain if you don't agree with me. But I'm going to check this out with Timothy when I get to heaven. But I sort of think that the reason the church at Ephesus backslid and didn't love Jesus as much as they used to was because of the timing of Timothy's death. And I think that perhaps Timothy was already gone by that time, and he wasn't there to keep preaching the word, to keep them pumped up in the things of Christ. But the sad fact that they didn't love Jesus as much as they used to demonstrates the fickleness of believers' hearts and the importance of faithfully preaching the word week in and week out, reproving, rebuking, exhorting believers so as to keep fickle believers from backsliding as far as they could backslide and to keep them snuggled up to Jesus. So Isaiah, in case I've not made myself clear, my charge to you, preach the word. 